We continue with our series today, Walking with Abram, soon to be Abraham, the great patriarch. And Abram today, if you remember from last week, now is at peace by God's might, as testified by Melchizedek. He's defeated the invading kings from the east and brought peace not just for his family, but for the whole region. He's been blessed also by Melchizedek. And he has seen God overcome war, famine, family strife, and his own doubt repeatedly. Yet, while he is at peace, that is, an absence of war, he is not at peace internally, as we're going to see. Being at peace is an elusive thing, isn't it? When we talk about being at peace personally, we're talking not just about the absence of war, of course, that would have a great effect on it, or even just the absence of violence or conflict, but we're talking about something deeper when we say, I'm at peace or I'm not at peace. We're talking about the biblical concept of shalom. It's not a feeling. It is a state of being. It's a tranquility, deep-seated insecurity and knowledge that all is well. While I'm not a fan of bumper sticker theology, as most of you might know, Jesus, I am a fan of this bumper sticker. Perhaps you've seen it. No Jesus, no peace, N-O. No Jesus, no peace, K-N-O-W. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. To know Jesus is to know peace, of course. And that's one of those short phrases that is absolutely true and can fit on a bumper sticker. As we see repeatedly demonstrated in our culture today, people can possess great wealth, can not be toiling for their every meal, can have plenty to eat, plenty to do, plenty to spend their money on, plenty of money to do it, be well-educated, and have no peace. Not be at peace at all. How many people have you known personally that seem on top of the world and are completely unhappy? Perhaps even you've been there. You have everything, it seems, but you're unhappy. Human beings in our fallen state without God cannot know peace cannot be at peace, for God has to give it to us. St. Augustine, that great theologian, famously said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And that is the truth. And yet, even once we know and are in covenant with the Lord, we're often restless and even fearful. And as we look at the text today, I want to bring out three points. Number one, God initiates covenant as an act of love. God initiates covenant as an act of love. Number two, God delights in our faith. And number three, God will keep the covenant and give you peace. So God initiates covenant, God delights in our faith, and it is God who will keep the covenant and give you peace. As you open in your Bibles to Genesis 15, we immediately see God perceiving Abram's discontent, and more than discontent, 
abject fear. Look with me at the Old Testament lesson, either in your order of service, on page 2, or on page 1, rather, or in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Well, what do we notice about that? Who is it that acts first? God. Who is it that starts the conversation here? Not Abram, but God. God acts first out of love. And it's, not, it's he who comes to Abram in Abram's lament. Why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose God does that? Why isn't he just responding to Abram? Why does he initiate? Well, on the very practical side, what has just happened in Genesis What's just going on? God is rewarding Abram because Abram has put his faith in God rather than the spoil of the king of Sodom, rather than the spoil of victory, right? We know that from last week's verse. The 4th century bishop of Milan, theologian and mentor of St. Augustine, says it this way, because Abram, or Abraham rather, did not seek recompense from man, he received it from God. The Lord pays back, so to speak, at high interest, rewarding with great abundance the one who has not been seduced by the things of the world. Abram could have very easily taken the security offered with the spoils of war from last week, but... He doesn't. Instead, he relies on God. God knows Abram has just chosen to rely on him. And so, even though Abram has chosen to rely on God, here he's discontent, perhaps even despondent. His fear is getting the better of him. He can't seem to get out of it. So God comes to him. And notice what God does. He says, something directed at his fear. He says, Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But there's another reason that God initiates this action with Abram. And that's out of God's love. Because this is the beginning of what theologians call the Abrahamic covenant. This is the beginning of what makes Abram's descendants, Abraham's descendants, and children of God. Here, this covenant starts. And so it is very fitting that it is God who starts the covenant, and it's God who initiates it. There's a great deal that can be said about covenants. We use that word a lot, right? We talk about our baptismal covenant. We talk about the covenant of marriage. We talk about all sorts of covenants in the Christian world. But Primarily, covenants are, in the Old Testament, treaties. They're treaties between kings and peoples. 
through their kings. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, known as the Law, the word covenant occurs 82 times. And the word itself shapes our Bibles, right? What do you call the two sides of the Bible? The two halves. The Old Testament and the New Testament, which is simply to say the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, right? So when we're looking at covenants here in the Old Testament, we're looking at treaties, contracts, compacts. Scholar T.D. Alexander and David Baker um, said it this way. He said that covenants are solemn commitments guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both covenanting parties. Solemn commitments guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both covenanting parties. And that makes sense, right? When we talk about the covenant of baptism, we talk about the covenant that we make with that baby or that adult to raise them or uphold them in the faith. Those are vows that we take. When we witness the covenant of marriage, we see a man covenant with a woman, making promises to love her to cherish her in sickness of health and the other way around, right? It is a solemn commitment signified by something. We wear wedding rings to signify the covenant of marriage, right? And so there are signs that also accompany divine covenant. But this divine covenant is coming from an Old Testament example of these ancient treaties. We'll come back to that in a moment. So here the word of the Lord comes to Abram, not once, but twice, initiating out of love. In the midst of his discontent and his fear, look at verse 1 and look at verse 4. Look at the phraseology. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. And behold, in verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. Mark that in your minds, because that's important. God comes to Abram initiating a covenant not just to bolster him, not just to pick him up out of his feeling bad, but to give him certainty, surety, and his promise of peace. To his credit, Abram voices exactly what he's afraid of to God, doesn't he? And what is it? What is it? Is it about his wealth or is it about his protection? No. It's about his offspring. His offspring. Lord, how are you going to make good on this promise that you made to me back in Genesis 12 about my offspring when I have no heir? Right? Eleazar, the servant that I have, is set to, to inherit things. And that's in accordance with the law of the time. And Abram doesn't mince words. He gets right at it, which is admirable. We can always bring our fears before the Lord and not be ashamed of them. Some people think that that's somehow impious, and that's not the case. You can always bring your fears honestly before the Lord. Look at verse 2 again. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. What's he saying there? All of your promises seem to be of no value because I'm childless. Abram wanted to be clear with God what his fear was. And so he is. 
And God wants to be just as clear in response. Look what God says again in in verse 4. He takes Abram's fear head on and says, This man, that is Eleazar of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then God goes further and takes him outside of the tent. Now, when you look up at the stars at night here in Lakewood or Cleveland, you can see lots of them. But imagine how many more Abram could see back 2,000 years B.C. in the middle of a desert where there's no light pollution, no electric light, nothing. God takes him outside and says, look at the stars. It's reckoned today that we can see about 2,000 stars. 2,000 to 4,000 stars. But back then, it would have been thousands more. And what does God say about Abram? Will he just give him a son? No. He says, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. To see how directly the Lord confronts his fear. And then gives him an example. He responds to Abram with great hope. And what's Abram's response? Verse 6, And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Friends, this demonstrates two things. Number one, that God is always going to speak to us regarding our fears, and that God is going to give us abundant Abundance beyond what we think, beyond what we can even ask for. Sometimes we'll even conclude our colics with that, with that prayer that God gives us things beyond what we can ask for. How does Abram respond with belief? Well, he's given this quick and prompt belief in the Spirit. In the Spirit. The Holy Spirit acts upon him and gives him this response, to accept God, to believe. He doesn't just seek a rational explanation, St. Ambrose says, but rather he believes with great promptness in the Spirit. Abram runs to God from fear to faith. He runs from fear to faith, metaphorically speaking, just as the blind man in today's Gospel passage runs to Jesus, actually. When we look at the short passage of the Gospel today, we find this blind man, Bartimaeus, outside the city of Jericho, crying by the road, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, he cries. Being blind must have been a terribly fearful thing, particularly back then, when your livelihood was constantly threatened and your life itself was constantly threatened by being blind. And look at how the crowds shout down the man in Mark chapter 10. Look at verses 50 through 52. What happens when Jesus calls to him? And throwing off his cloak, the blind man sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. 
to see the blind man runs from fear to faith. The blind man runs to Jesus because he knows that he can trust Him despite what everybody else is saying, despite the obstacles that he has. He runs to the feet of our Lord. But notice what Jesus does before the blind man runs to Him. Jesus calls him. The Gospel is very dramatic in verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up. He is calling you. Take heart, get up. He is calling you. It is this certainty in who Jesus is and then therefore who God is that makes us able to have faith. Faith is not this nebulous word that our culture uses in the Bible. Faith is not some kind of unreasonable putting your belief in something. That's, that's of this world. That's not scriptural faith. Faith is certainty in the person of Jesus. It's trust in who God is. Not in some God out there that might care for me, but in a personal God whom I know loves me. The word used in the Greek, interestingly, in this passage as well as Romans, for belief and faith is the Greek word pistuo. It means to have confidence in, to be certain with conviction of, or to trust. The blind man like Abram, has faith and trusts in God in this way. It is this kind of faith that he has. And because of that, we're told that Abram's trust or his faith is counted to him as righteousness before God. And it is this faith also that Jesus says heals the blind man. Friends, God delights in this kind of faith He doesn't just desire it. He delights in it. He wants you to have this kind of faith because it means that you trust Him with your everything, with your whole being. Did you know that the rest of Romans chapter 4 and Genesis 15 are actually saying the very same thing? I don't know whether you do do or not. It's easier to see it in Romans 4, right? But notice, who is it that comes to Abram in Genesis 15? Who comes to Abram? Remember I told you to mark that in your mind? Who calls to him? Look at back at verse 1 and verse 4 again. Who is it? More specific than God. That's right, but more specific than that. The Word. Who is the Word of the Lord? Jesus. Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Don't make me work so hard for it. Goodness. Jesus. Jesus the word is the Word of the Lord. And He is calling to Abram in the Old Testament here. Now, consider that for a moment that Jesus himself comes to Abram in his fear and initiates this covenant. Now, look with me at Romans chapter 4, our second lesson. Romans chapter 4, specifically verses 11 and 12. It's on page 3. 
he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. St. Paul's talking about Abram. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. St. Paul's making an argument here in the midst of Romans that it's not by the law, it's not by the covenant of circumcision that the Old Testament people of God are saved, although that is a sign of it. But rather, it's by faith. It's how, in how they imitate Abraham back in Genesis 15. Now let's continue. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Why is St. Paul talking about circumcision here? He's making the point that in faith, those who are Jews and those who are Gentiles can be sons of God and be, therefore, sons of Abraham, right? You ever sing that Sunday school song? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. You know the song? Yeah, you do. What is that saying? That's pointing back to the Scripture. That's actually pointing back to Romans 4. That we all are sons of Abraham by faith. By faith that we are declared righteous, forgiven and acceptable, justified before God, not because of works or because of circumcision, but because of faith. We could even add to that, not because of baptism, because what would baptism be without the sacrifice of Jesus and faith? Right? What does this matter? Well, St. Paul is telling us that it is through this faith in God's sacrifice that we're saved and that this began way back in the Old Testament. So where does Jesus' sacrifice fit in in the Old Testament? Well, the modern church had lost a great deal of understanding about covenant. And it's at this point that we have to credit a great scholar in the mid-20th century by the name of Mendenhall who published a book in 1955 called Law and Covenant. And in his archaeology, in his study of the ancient world, he looked at Hittite treaties, right? These people that were around Abram at the time that Genesis 15 is going on. And one of the things he found is that these treaties all looked the same. They all had the same setup, just as much as our marriage ceremony, at least used to have the same setup universally in our culture, so this, these treaties all looked the same, and they looked like this. 
There was a superior king and there was an inferior king. And the superior king would come to the inferior king and say, look, I got a deal that you can't refuse. Quite literally. I will protect you and you give me tribute. And we're going to ratify that by this covenant. And so in this covenant, the inferior king would say, well, yes, superior king, please do that. And uh, because I have no choice. And therefore, the uh, inferior king would take animals and split them. And so you would have half the animal on one side and half the animal on the other side and a pathway coming down the middle, right? And what would happen is the superior king would sit there and watch, and after the oath was made, the inferior king would have to walk through the dead animals. So you've got this blood gore everywhere, right? Imagine. And the inferior king has to walk through it and then kneel down in front of the superior king. What was that saying in the ancient world? It was the object lesson of object lessons. It was saying to the inferior king, this is how you're going to end up if you don't keep this treaty. Like these dead, split open animals. It's a powerful image. What is the rest of Genesis 15 about? That God makes that covenant with Abram, but he puts a twist on it. Look with me once again at Genesis. This time look at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three-year-old goat, three years old rather, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought it to him. And all these, he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down to the carcass, Abram drove them away. Now verse 12 through 16 foretells the slavery that the Hebrews will enter in Egypt. But we're going to skip to verse 17. Continue with this. And the sun had gone down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the river of the Euphrates. And then we get the lists of the peoples that occupy the land. What's God doing? He's making this covenant with Abram. But what's the twist? Does Abram walk through the split animals? No. Who walks through the split animals? God does himself. And so we get to the third point of the sermon. And that is that God will keep the covenant himself that he makes. Both sides. Both sides of the covenant. Because he himself will take the bloody, the bloody end of Abram and his descendants' inability to keep the covenant. 
And so, friends, do you see what's going on here? Genesis is telling the very same story that Romans is. Telling how God himself provides for his people and then takes the wrath of the broken covenant. This superior king walks through the pieces. Walks through the pieces. And look what he says. This is my covenant for you. Your offspring shall inherit the land. He's making this abundantly clear to Abram. This isn't just the promise of God, the Most High, but I'm going to show you in your own culture, in your own way, how serious I take this promise. And by the way, that will foretell Jesus, the Son of God, coming and taking that sacrifice upon Himself. The symbolism's clear. The symbolism's clear. Abram watches and sees this and is satisfied. But his faith has been reckoned, has made him righteous. As scholar and commentator Meredith Klein writes, God walks the way of death, summoning the death curse on himself if he should fail to keep the covenant. And as the gospel discloses, the covenant was kept and the promises in their ultimate meaning fulfilled in God's only son undergoing the death curse. Speaking of Abram, Abraham, Jesus himself says this to the Jews in John chapter 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Is it any wonder that Abraham rejoiced? Is it any wonder that he rejoiced? Now his descendants aren't just guaranteed, but a Savior is guaranteed to them. And through him, not just his descendants, but the whole world would be blessed by a covenant of faith. By a covenant of faith. And so here we are, Jew and Gentile, with Abram as our father, as a covenant of faith, with Christ who keeps both sides of the covenant. Jesus' sacrifice still does this when we first turn to Him and when we continue to turn to Him even after we falter in faith. And so how do we apply this to our lives today? Well, as a Christian, you stand as a son or daughter of faith. You are one of Abraham's sons or daughters in Jesus. Whether a baby or an adult, God initiated this for you. He spoke to you. The Word of the Lord came to you. He brought you into relationship and made you righteous. Abraham witnesses this covenant ritual, and so you have been signed and sealed as God's own in the New Testament covenant rituals of the sacrament of baptism and the unbloody sacrifice of Holy Communion. Through our trust, our deep faith in Jesus, we are sons and daughters of God. And through that covenant paid by Jesus, we continue as sons and daughters of God. That's the promise Jesus gives the church. And have you ever been in a place where you stood valiantly for God only to collapse and have that certainty snatched from you? I think we can all honestly say that even after becoming covenant sons and daughters of God, we've been there. Friends, know this, that in those times, God hasn't left you 
He hasn't abandoned you. Like Abram or Bartimaeus, he still calls you to himself. And Jesus is always calling us to a deeper trust in him. He gives us that trust so that we can pray with Psalm 3 today. But you, O Lord, are my defender. You are my glory and the one who lifts up my head. It's in hard times, run to Jesus like Bartimaeus, like Abraham. Meet your Lord in prayer, in his word, in the Christian community, in the sacrament of the altar. He delights in your trust. And finally, he gives you peace. And he alone can give you peace. God asks us to continue to trust him with each year that goes by. I don't know about your life, but as my life progresses, things seem to get more and more complicated. And I seem to see more and more threats. But so as we go along in our life, God is trustworthy. And our belief in God's goodness and care for us meets every fear. We must believe that He has secured us so that we can be a blessing to others. You know, one of, the, one of the tricks of the enemy is to make you so frazzled, make you think that you're on the edge constantly so that all you can do is survive and cannot help anybody else. How many of us are there on occasion, maybe all the time, that the enemy puts this in our head that we don't have peace and we're just on the edge and we're about to fall off and therefore I can't help anybody else. Maybe it's financially, maybe it's emotionally, maybe it's with our time. Friends, that's not true. That's not true. You're buying a lie instead of buying into the peace that passes understanding that God has given you. Don't fall for that trick. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, and so are you. But to be part of that blessing entails understanding how much you've been blessed. Understand it and live it. I've always loved how the service of morning prayer ends with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, and so I'm going to end the sermon with it today. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to Him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen.